0: We're tonight going to be going through chapter 13 in the book, Rider on the White Horse, and we're going to look at the return of Christ and talk about rapture, second coming, and all that good stuff. And um, so let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now that you gave us this word so that we would understand the times that we live in, so that we would not be taken unaware. And so, Lord, we ask you right now in the name of Jesus to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive the Word of God. Thank you for giving us understanding and by faith or by hearing the Word of God our faith is built. And so Lord thank you for building our faith by hearing the Word tonight. Now breathe a prayer with me church and say Lord speak to my heart. I receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him he's coming back soon. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, in chapters 17 to 18, just doing a little bit of recap here because you're covering, is that you back there, Barney? I'm sorry. Y'all let me pause for a minute here. Is your wife with you? Pastor Barney. All right. Pastor Barney, bring, bring her up here, because I haven't even met her yet. Now, I've known Pastor Barney for years. How did you end up here tonight? Now, see, you didn't think I'd spot you, did you? Now, me and Pastor Barney go all the way back, wow, to the early 90s. Yeah, when I was a first one in college. And I was starting to think he was going to be one of these people that never got married and lived with his mother and just passed her to church. This is Ellen. And this is Ellen. This is not his mother. And he recently, finally got married. Now, tell them. uh, Yeah. Now, just tell them what your church name is. Fort Worth Harvest Church. And it's located? Uh, By Riverside and 121. Riverside. And Pastor Barney is a very educated man. Speaking of education, you believe we're starting a seminary? you know that? Okay. And how far have you gone? Doctorate? Doctorate? And a doctorate in what? Ministry? And uh, so you married a very educated man, but you're prettier than he is. (laughs) Right, Pastor Varney? No, it's so good to see you. And uh, I love you. you. Thanks for coming by. All right. Well, I'm glad they did. Okay. Well, that's two interruptions. Let's just get right on into it now. In chapters 17 to 18, John has foreseen, remember, Two Babylons, a spiritual Babylon symbolized by the great harlot, which we talked about being an apostate religious system that anybody really that thinks about it can see forming today as so many whole denominations are walking away from the word of God and embracing new age mysticism and relativism and um, political correctness and all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with the word of God. and And that's what they teach and it's, it's tragic. So that's the great harlot, and it is forming. And then there's a literal physical Babylon that would become the headquarters of Antichrist and his evil political system. Now, we saw last time that both are going to be destroyed. Antichrist is going to rule the world, but not for long. The destruction of the literal last days city of Babylon is going to be accompanied by the financial devastation of the entire world. It's going to spell the end of Antichrist's economy, the mark of the beast, the one world currency, and everything that is going to be in place when he seizes the reins of power. Now, with the beginning of chapter 19, the apostle is once again taken up into heaven to hear a crowd shouting. And I think God, as you, if you've been here with us this whole time, then you Heard me say over and over again that John will be on earth and be uh, shown things happening on the earth. And then as if God realizes he needs a respite from the terrible things he's seeing, he takes him up into heaven. And he has visions of what's going on in glory. Right now, if we could see into heaven, we would be speechless. We would fall on our face and cry out in worship at what we would behold going on in heaven. Because it's an entirely different world. It is the fourth dimension. It is that place we can't see, taste, hear, touch, or smell with our five, our five senses, but it's very real. And thank God, his word pulls back the veil and shows it to us. Amen. And so here, John is being taken up in, in, in chapter 19 as we begin uh, into heaven and he hears a great crowd shouting. Let's, let's read it starting at verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting. Say it with me. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And somehow they all know to say this at once. But look at all the praise going on in heaven. That's why I tell people, if you get uptight during the praise time in our church, you need to get over it and get over it quickly. Because when you get taken up into heaven, you're going to culture shock. Because that's all they do up there. Now, this incredible hallelujah chorus stands in sharp contrast to what's happening on the earth what's happening on the earth as john sees this hallelujah chorus in heaven wailing weeping for the world is falling apart coming apart at the seams collapsing what they thought was their safety and their security led by antichrist is now completely disintegrating before their eyes And the world is horrified while heaven is rejoicing that Babylon is done. Now, there's four hallelujahs, or praise the Lord's, um, proclaiming the triumph of heaven, the judgment of the false and final super church or apostate church, and of the whole Babylonian system, including the dreaded mark of the beast. It's all coming undone, all coming apart. The Lord has finally taken vengeance on those that persecuted and murdered his people. Now, remember those souls we've seen under the altar so many times in the book of Revelation that were martyred? And what were they saying under the altar in heaven? Uh, They had one question, how long, Lord? How long before you avenge what they did to us, that we lost our lives, that we were wrongly killed? How long, Lord? The 24 elders and the four living creatures are now heard for the very last time. The 24 elders representing the church of Jesus Christ, the four living creatures, for the last time, they give a mighty shout of praise. Verse 3, and again, their voices rang out. What did it say? Praise the Lord. And the smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. That's talking about Babylon. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down, and what did they do? They just worship God, who was sitting on the throne, and they cried out, say it with me, church, amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. And then the voice of a great multitude, all of the redeemed of all the ages, Sound out the final hallelujah. Do you sense now everything's coming to a close? Everything's coming to an end. Just like when a movie ends, it says the end, there is going to be an end to this world and this life as we have known it. There there will be an, a, a the end. And this is it. This is the end of history as we have known it. The history of the world. Revelations 19, verse 6. Then I heard again what sounded like, listen to these These uh, descriptions. He's looking for similes. He's looking for ways to express or describe what he's hearing. So he uses three words, shout, roar, crash. He says, I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of a mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. In other words, this praise the Lord that he heard is like Man, it's like you're at a Super Bowl game and it's the last 60 seconds and a team has come up from behind and somebody on that team that was losing and is about to win intercepts a ball and runs across the goal line and wins. That roar that erupts, I think this is more than that. He says, man, it's like a crash of thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. Now, remember these verses, because we're coming back to them in just a little bit. Now, following the fourth hallelujah comes the presentation of the Lamb's wife, the ransomed, glorified bride of Christ, and all of her spotless purity. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. And, and now turn to the other side and say, you're going to be there isn't this amazing? We really are going to be here. So this is the first of two suppers in this climactic chapter. It's the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride. And it says in the last part of verse seven, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. Now, please note with me, listen carefully, because I got to walk you through some difficult stuff tonight as far as interpretation and we have to pay real close attention to words and how John uses them. The time has come at this point in the narrative for the wedding feast of the Lamb and His bride has prepared herself. Now, in telling us that, he's not saying it's happening right then. He's saying the hour has arrived where we're about to have The marriage supper of the Lamb. But he's not saying, none of the verbiage here says, it's happening right then. He's saying, this is the hour. This is the season. This is the moment. Okay? Keep that in mind. Now, some have called this grand event the marriage of the bride. It's really not the marriage of the bride. It's the marriage of the Lamb. Because the bride of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, Christ, or the bride is the lamb, Jesus Christ's chief joy. You are his chief joy. I love that little kid's song, "Jesus loves me, this I know." For the Bible tells me, so we don't know how much He loves us. God so loved the world. He couldn't help himself. He gave his only begotten Son. That's love. Okay, When all the redeemed are around him in heaven, then he's going to fully enjoy the fulfillment of why he died. John notes the bride is dressed in white. Look at verse 8. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now, you may not feel like it tonight, but you've already got on white linen. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your faults. He doesn't see your shortcomings. When God looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees Jesus. Because he has imputed his righteousness to you. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the, say it with me, righteousness of God in Christ. So... You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You have been clothed in white linen. But here we're seeing it uh, in heaven when everything is coming to a close and a new world is about to be born. And look what the white linen represents, the second half of verse 8. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now, the good deeds of which John is speaking are the works of done by God's saints in obedience to him. As we teach here all the time, good works don't save you, but good works attest to the reality of your having been saved. If you are genuinely saved, I guarantee you, you're involved in good works. That Paul said in Ephesians, God ordained we would walk in before he even made the worlds, which, which twists my brain. I can't think about it. Because before he said, let there be light, he ordained that you would be involved in good works through Christ. That's why I say God never says, well, I'll be. He sees the end from the beginning of all things. So these good works, let's talk about them for a minute. The good works are the deeds that are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Let's read what he said, because... Unlike sinners who will go to the great white throne judgment, none of you will be there if you're saved. But you will go to the judgment seat of Christ, where not sin is not judged, but your works are judged. So let's read about it. Paul writes in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we have already laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Now he's saying, I led you to Christ, but now you have others who are teaching you how to live for Christ, how to walk with Christ, how to work and serve Christ. Others are teaching you that. So so the foundation is there is salvation by no other name that is named but the name of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can save. That's the foundation. But like right now, I'm teaching you and I'm building on the foundation that's already in your life. And that's a very humbling and a very sometimes nerve-wracking calling because you got to rightly divide the word of truth because you're laying, uh, you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ in people's lives. And, and if you teach them wrong, the foundation or the, the building will be faulty. So anybody, he goes on, verse 12, anybody who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, the judgment day of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Wow. I'm going to read that last one again. The fire is going to reveal if a person's work has any eternal value. What you've done with the time God gave you in the body he gave you to do it in the works done in the body while we were in time and space on planet Earth. That's why this is only, listen, uh, the time we're on Earth is like a blink sandwiched in between two eternities. But that blink is when God has given you time to rack up treasure in heaven. And what we do with the time God gave us, how we live, Do we serve him or do we serve us? Do we discover his will for us and walk in it or do we do our own thing? Do we seek the Lord or do we seek our own desires? Has anybody been touched by Jesus through us? Have we prayed? Have we ministered? Have we reached out? Have we served in our church? Have we been involved or have we been on the sidelines? spectators and not participators. On the judgment day, fire is going to reveal what you did. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Verse 14, if the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames, In other words, by the skin of your chinny chin chin, you'll get in by the blood. But see, you want, I've counted, I think there's seven or eight crowns that are given at the judgment seat of Christ as rewards. There's there's a crown for the soul winner. There's a crown for the faithful pastor. There is a crown for the righteous. There is a crown. There's like eight of them. And these are rewards. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If we couldn't do it, he wouldn't have told us to. So just keeping in mind the good deeds for which these saints in Revelation have received the reward of pure white linen are works that were done in obedience to Jesus Christ. So what is God wanting you to do? What does he nudge you to do? What does he put in your heart as a desire to do? What can you do to serve Christ? It's not going to save you, but it will certainly be rewarded in the day to come if it's done for his glory, in his name, in his will. Amen? Amen. 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 While good deeds don't merit our salvation, they attest, they do attest to the authenticity of our salvation And notice now, after the bridal banquet, the triumphant saints go forth to participate in the glorious appearing and the establishment of our Lord's long-awaited kingdom. Now, who is among these saints? Who are these saints? Well, Hebrews 12, 23 might be telling us. Let me read it to you. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge of all things. You have come to the Spirit's of the righteous ones in heaven. Notice, before the resurrection from the dead, it's our spirits that are in heaven. Our bodies are in the dirt. But notice, he said, the spirits of righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. These are the redeemed of this age, rewarded and glorified, now ready to be exalted with Christ in heavenly splendor and guests at the marriage feast. What an incredible feast that's going to be. We're going to see John the Baptist there. We're going to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and James, and Jude, Timothy, Adam I'm going to (laughs) find. Thanks a lot, dude. (laughs) But the Old Testament saints, the redeemed church, the tribulation martyrs, they're going to be there at this feast. It's going to be a joyous celebration to honor the lamb and the lamb's wife before all of heaven. John is so overcome with this scene that the angel speaks to him again and says in verse 9, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. What are the next three words? Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Do you know that any time you testify of Jesus Christ, you're prophesying? Because the testimony or the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. When you clearly testify of Jesus, you're prophesying. Now, I want to pause here. Now, what I'm about to go into is not in your book, and I'm going to probably put it in the reprint when we reprint. comes out in the second edition. So get ready to take some notes if you want. But let me pause for a minute, speak to the issue of the rapture and the second coming of Christ, and I'm going to go where angels fear to tread. But here I go. I want, I want you to understand tonight that there are two views held by good people on both sides, good people, scholarly people, and you know what? People who are saved as you are. There's two views. And let me give these two views regarding the rapture and the second coming. Here's the first one. The first one is the church will be raptured or caught up off the earth just before the seven-year tribulation begins. Now, most of us were raised learning that. How many of you were raised learning that? Okay. How many weren't? Let me see those hands. Okay. All right. That surprises me. Good. Now, if you have been taught and believe that the rapture of the church is going to take place right before the seven-year tribulation period begins, you are what a, a seminarian would call... A pre tribulationist. Okay? And I, like I said, was brought up under this. Uh, Most people in the Jesus movement were brought up under this. It's easily the most embraced of the two views in America Uh, and has certainly been popularized by Christian movies like Left Behind and Tim LaHaye's huge bestseller Left Behind book series the teaching of many popular pastors. And I remember when I came into the things of God and got filled with the spirit, began walking with him, the the most famous song out there was Larry Norman's left behind. I would sing it for you, but I want to hold your attention. (laughs) But that, that was one of the most famous songs out there. You've been left behind. That was the whole deal. You know, that, that when the rapture happens, you know, Plane, uh, planes are going to be flying through the air with no pilot, and and uh, people are going to be driving down the highway, and then suddenly there's not going to be anybody behind the wheel, and or you're going to go home, and nobody's going to be home. <laughs> I read, this is really what a church staff did to their youth pastor. This is true. And I thought it was great. If, and I regretted that I told my own staff about it because then I couldn't do it. But what they did was he fell asleep in staff. So they all got up, got some clothes and put them in all their chairs and went out. And he wakes up. Oh, and they they went out and blew a trumpet. He wakes up and all he sees is clothes in chairs. Man, I wanted to do that, but I told the staff about that. Anyway. So so you get that that's the first view. You're right before the tribulation, you know, we're not going to go through any of the tribulation. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now the second view, also held by many good people and scholars, I might add, is that the second coming and the rapture are one and the same event. One and the same event. That there won't be two separate appearances of Jesus the rapture before the tribulation, and the second coming at the end of the tribulation. But it's one and the same that at the end of the tribulation, Christ will come, and right before he appears and comes to earth to stop the war of Armageddon, all of those who have gone to sleep in him have died in him, will be resurrected from the dead, and those who are believers in the tribulation will be caught up and then return back down with him. This is held by many people. Jesus will resurrect the saints just prior to his visible return to the earth. The saints will then accompany him as he returns to stop the great war of Armageddon, destroy the Antichrist, and establish the millennial kingdom. Now, those that hold to the first view, the pre-tribulationists, point to passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. I'm just going to read it to you because you all know it, but let me read it. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, writes Paul, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There it is. Caught up. Rapturo. Caught up. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Now, I'm just going to share with you the objections to this, and I'm going to share with you the objections to the other one. And I'm going to let... And then I'll tell you what I think about it at the end. The objections to the first view, the pre-tribulationists, are three. And here they are. It does not say that just prior to the great tribulation, the Lord will descend with a shout. In other words, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 describes the rapture But it does not give us a time. It's just a description of the catching up of what will happen. First, those who have been buried, died in Christ, will be brought up. Those of us that are still walking around will be caught up after them. We'll meet Him in the clouds with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. But notice, scour it. Scour it on your own. You will not see anywhere in there a time. It does not say, follow me now, these words. Just prior to the great tribulation, the Lord himself will descend with a shout. With the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel. It doesn't say that. Are you with me? I'm just reading. It doesn't give us a time. It gives us a description of the rapture. Secondly, Those that hold the pre-tribulation rapture view insist that it must happen prior to the great tribulation. Because after all, didn't God say in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So so those who are pre-tribulationists say that proves that, that we will go up before the great tribulation. Because in the great tribulation, God is pouring out wrath. And we are not appointed to wrath, so he's going to get us out. However, now I'm being devil's advocate. Y'all do understand that. Don't look at me so mean. I'm not here to, to bash your, your belief system. I'm not. I'm an honest exegete. I'm an honest interpreter. I'm just sharing with you. Put your, put your rocks down. All right. <laughs> now. Think with me, this verse does not specify which wrath Paul is talking about when he says, we have not been appointed to wrath, but to salvation. He doesn't tell us a time there or what wrath he's talking about. He could easily be talking about the wrath of God at the final great white throne judgment, which no believer will experience. Nobody is going to be at the great white throne judgment that is a believer He doesn't tell us what wrath he's talking about. He just says we're not appointed to wrath. Finally, it's worth noting, I really do believe it is worth noting that the pre-tribulation rapture teaching only first appeared in 1830 through a man named John Nelson Darby. The rapture doctrine did not exist in church history before John Darby introduced it. It wasn't there. In a time, an extended time of convalescence, he had been in some kind of an accident, and so he was convalescing at home. He had all kinds of time to kill, so he, just, he read through the Bible. He was a very bright guy. I believe he was an attorney. I'm not sure. But he, he's reading uh, all, all these Bible passages about the return of Christ and whatnot, and in his own study of Scripture... Darby came up with this interpretation, pre-trib rapture, no Christians in the tribulation, then Christ comes for a second time in the second coming, and he taught it. He preached it when he got better. He went and he preached it throughout many American churches where one of his attendees was C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible. If you know anything about Bibles, you've heard of the Schofield Reference Bible. Huge bestseller in its time. Schofield, in listening to Darby, became convinced of Darby's interpretation and highlighted his reference Bible with the rapture teaching. And his reference Bible wound up popularizing the belief in the pre-trib rapture more than any single thing in the 1800s. Before then, no one had ever heard of a secret rapture doctrine. Now, you you can scour church history, go back to the early church fathers, and you might find some obscure monk somewhere who wrote a little something that sounds like rapture teaching. But as far as it being a collectively church-wide embraced position, It simply wasn't there until 1830. Now, put put the rocks down. I'm not done. I I just, you you all are, I want you to be thinking people. I want you to be studious people. I want you to go dig into these things yourself. Now, let's go to the second view. The post-tribulation view simply holds that the catching up of the saints happens in conjunction with the return of Christ to the earth. Some protest this view by saying, for instance, but what about the marriage supper of the Lamb that we just read about? It happens before he appears visibly to the earth. Then how is the bride already up there doing the marriage supper of the Lamb if she hasn't been caught up yet? But once again, John's revelation doesn't give a time for when the bride appears in heaven, only that she does. And post-tribulationists believe that the marriage supper depicted in chapter 19 that we read about just a moment ago is only a prophetic hymn. And that the actual event of the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs in chapter 20 After Christ has returned on the white horse as victorious conqueror, Antichrist has been vanquished, the great war of Armageddon has been ended, and the binding and imprisonment of the devil has occurred. Then, and only then, does the reign announced in chapter 19, verse 6, actually begin according to post-tribulationists. And then the marriage supper occurs. I believe totally in the any-moment appearance of Jesus Christ. He could come at any moment. Okay? My philosophy is this. Plan like he won't return in my lifetime, but live like he could come back before I get home tonight. Did you catch that? Do you know how many people I know, how many people I've come across for the years who never went to college, never developed their lives, never developed their potential... Because they were so certain Jesus was going to come back before they got old. They said, why waste my time? And they never did anything with their life. These are the people that put on white sheets and get on the top of mountains and hama, 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 and just wait for him to come back. And, And they're, they're no earthly good. They don't reach anybody. They, they're, they're, well, they're weird. They're weird. Have you ever noticed there's some weird folks in church? They're weird. What you doing? Waiting for Jesus. Well, what were you doing last year? Waiting for Jesus. Well, what are you doing with your life? Waiting for Jesus. They spook me. They go about that far, and I say, you know, it's been great meeting you. God bless you. I got to run. Now, listen carefully, to me. Let me say it again. I plan my life like he won't return in my lifetime. But I live my life like he could return today. Now, let me explain my position to you. In one of Jesus' parables, illustrating his departure and his eventual return, he tells the servants that he leaves in charge four words. Occupy till I come. What's the first word? What's the last word? So, so he's got me focused on occupying before he's got me focused on his coming. He said in the parable, talking to the servants who always represents the church, saying, occupy. Now, that's what's front burner for me, to occupy. And that word means do kingdom business. Be about the Lord's work until he returns. And I started thinking of all the parables he taught, parable of the talents, parable of the ten virgins, parable of the householder. You go read all those parables in Matthew. Every one of them, here's the gist of them. You've got the householder that went away on a long journey. You've got the groom who hasn't shown up for the bride yet. You've got the boss man who leaves his servants in charge of his goods. The parable of the talents and the gist of every one of those parables is I'm coming back, you know, not when, and what I'm going to be concerned about when I come back is what did you do while I was gone? That's going to be my concern. Said Jesus, he came back and said, how'd you treat one another? What would you do with my talents? What did you do while I was gone? And in every one of those parables, when he came back, it was a shock to them every time. They did not know when he was coming back. Just like he told us, you do not know. If he wanted us all focused on it exclusively and only, he would have told us when he's coming back. But he said, no, no, it's it's open-ended. I'm not going to, because I don't know, Jesus said. The father has it in his own understanding. So I read these parables. I read the teachings of Jesus. I see these various views on rapture, second coming, and so on and so forth. I know he's coming. My concern is when he says to Jeff Wickwire, what would you do when I was gone? I can say, Lord, I took that one talent you gave me because I only got one. I'm not one of these multi-gifted people, sing and dance and chew and run with the boys that do and all. I just have one. And I want to be able to say to him, Lord, I minister your word in every way I could discover. I did it as faithfully as I could. And and, and I want to be able to say that to him. I want to hear, well done. He, He didn't say good waiting. He said, well done, my good and faithful servant. When Jesus was about to ascend back into heaven, his disciples asked him when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus replied, it's not for you to know times or seasons. In other words, boys, get your mind off this. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. What is Jesus doing? He's getting their eyes off of the times and the seasons and onto the ministry, the work. Amen. In other words, disciples of mine focused on kingdom business, not on the exact time of my return. So do I care that he's coming back? I fully know he's coming back. But When? I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe it's all going to pan out. Seriously. I'm not trying to be funny because some of you are looking at me like, wow, I can't believe you just said these things. Well, read your Bible. I'm not saying anything that's not here in the Bible. He's coming back. And I want to be able to say, I did all I could do with what you gave me. Here it is, Lord. I've invested the talent. Are you with me? Well, Pastor Jeff, I'm disappointed that you didn't give us a position. Go pray. Go pray. The Bible says you have no need that any man teach you. But the same anointing that you have received will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that, that I've said to you. So I just want you, I'm trying to teach an attitude and a view of this instead of trying to be, theologically accurate without being open to anything else. Now, back to the revelation, and let me finish. John witnesses now the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, the likes of which the world has never seen. In verse 11, heaven opens up, and from that lofty realm comes the all-conquering Christ. Let's read verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, says John, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named, what? Faithful and true, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the word of God. Gee, I wonder who this is. And we note next that the redeemed of the Lord enter the picture. And here comes you again. The Lord Jesus' blood-bought saints return with him. Now, if they've been up there for seven years and now they're returning, or if they just got caught up and they're coming back down with him, I don't care. The Lord Jesus' blood-bought saints are going to return with him. That I know. Even Enoch of old prophesied of this amazing event. Listen to what he said. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with who? Ten thousands of his saints. That's you. Is that going to be something or what? John describes this spectacular event in Living Technicolor. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, No doubt, that's the church, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title. Say it with me, King of kings and Lord of all lords. Now notice in closing that he's given descriptive names, and there's seven of them. Sixth we see in this verse, and one was given earlier, and we're just going to look at them all. They are, he's called the Lamb, he's called Faithful, he's called True. There's a mysterious name that nobody knows but himself. Then the Word of God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, seven names. This amazing event is the fulfillment of both Old and New Testament prophecies concerning Messiah's sudden and majestic return. Now, I want you to notice with me, here's what I believe, and this is what the Bible clearly teaches. It is a literal, personal, visible, physical, and spiritual return of the same Jesus who lifted up his hands while the disciples watched in the book of Acts and ascended up into heaven in Acts 1.11. That same Christ returns. It is the event John described at the beginning of Revelations 1, verse 7. Look, he said, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everybody will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. That's as far as we can get tonight. How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? Amen? Let's stand together, can we? Can you say with me, I know he's coming back. I I don't know when, when. but I'm going to do all I can to live for him him. until he returns. returns. In Jesus' name, give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.